Today's show is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Try ZipRecruiter for free by visiting ZipRecruiter.com slash labeled. Whatever you listen to is what you look like, mm-hmm. which is who you identified with. Right. And Nothing really got my wheels turning like Art did. And I was like, so let me get this right. You want me to hire a guy that doesn't know how to use a computer to be my head of graphic design? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we're starting the first leg of a two-parter. And you can think of this first one as a prequel to the next one, which is an origin story. (laughs) How about that? Okay, so first we're going to talk to Brandon about the merger with EMI, which is where we are in the current timeline. But then we're going to jump all the way back and trace the paths of two key players in this whole story. That's John Dunn and Ryan Clark. Now, these two guys are very important for a number of reasons. It'll be made clear. And also, they're close by here in Seattle, so I've got good access to them, and I know they're intersecting stories pretty well. Now, both of these guys are what I consider to be the archetype of a first-generation tooth-and-nail kid. Their formative experiences are quite similar to many of you guys, and I find it fascinating how like-minded people gravitate toward one another, and then magic starts to happen. It's a beautiful thing. So we're going to hear everything from the backstory of Focal Point and Training for Utopia and how Ryan's brother Don talked Brandon into giving Ryan a job even though he didn't totally have the skills. And then eventually, on the next episode, we're going to do the real origin story of Demon Hunter. Now, these episodes don't exactly follow a normal path, but neither does life and neither did Tooth and Nail. So we want to celebrate this culture that leans into unconventional approaches and creativity and spend some time understanding and remembering what it's like to be a kid and to discover and get inspired by music. And the big takeaway that I want everybody to focus on for these next two is that in the world of Tooth and Nail Records and in underground music and maybe in every community today, there truly is opportunity to become involved, to learn, grow, and make an impact and even succeed beyond your imagination. So to start it off, we're going to jump right in with Brandon as he explains the difference the merger made for him. And while at face value, it might feel unrelated to making your dreams come true, it's totally related. Here's me and Brandon. They did all of my legal and accounting and all my back end. Around that time, for one reason or another, people from the 90s had started to move on. You know, Bill Power moved on to go start, I think, Zambui. Trees had moved on. Lots of people just, you know, had moved on. And so I started hiring a whole different staff. And all around that same time, we're signing newer bands. And we are moving offices. And... Now Tooth & Nail is a brand name that people know. So that allowed me to have more funds, right? We were doing well. So I went out and hired guys like John Frazier, who had worked for another label. Um, it was almost like a whole second wave, right? Mm-hmm. There's like different waves to Tooth & Nail's history, not just musically and genre-wise, but also just staff-wise, office-wise, and size-wise, everything. And so the Tooth & Nail of the 2000s was just drastically different than the tooth and nail of the 90s what was the what was the 90 i mean both are good so this isn't going to be one versus the other but what was good about the 90s that was not there in the 2000s um god that's a really good question i that, that i have to really think about that one Just both both eras being very very good the employees from both seem to really say great things about it but what would what would have been well i mean i guess in the 2000s we were a little bit more corporate but that was a good thing, right? Because we were a better record label for artists. We served artists better. We had more money. We had more structure. But we were still tooth and nail. It was still very loose. 
still very family, still very fun. But the 90s were, I think, probably the deepest memories. When I ever talked to somebody who's a fan from the 90s, it's like we were part of their lives, right? They, they Those are the kids that like some of them couldn't get normal music. They had to get their CD at the Christian bookstore, and we were their outlet to like reality, which, you know, Tooth & Nail never really started off to be like that, but we were that. In the 2000s, that was a whole different deal where we were way bigger, right? So it was like our our music just stands on its own. Our bands are on Warp Tour, right? As Cities Burns on Warp Tour, Under Oaths on Warp Tour. This isn't just the cornerstone culture anymore where we're isolated to like Purple Door, Cornerstone, and a few Christian festivals. Tooth & Nail is now competing with Epitaph and Victory Records and everybody else, and we're just as good. So it was just different, right? It was much larger. Though in the, in the minds of people from the 90s, because there's people that follow Tooth & Nail probably some of you out there listening right now for this the entire 25 years right then there are some people that just go on spotify today and they don't even know what tooth and nail is but they like one or two groups and then there's the people the 2000s that the, the fans that were in going to warp tour and into under oath and you know into amber lynn and emory and, and then there's the the people from the 90s that kind of faded out at that point right because they got married at 26 or 7 and sell, sold insurance and like they stopped going to shows or whatever right so the 90s was way more disorganized, way more flying by the seat of our pants. You know, every day I thought I was going out of business. I mean, it was eating the beans out of the can, like oatmeal for three, three meals a day, just starving, trying to make this thing work. While the 2000s were, we made it. So big differences, but musically totally different as well because we went through a punk rock phase we went through an indie rock phase and the 2000 it was kind of like almost everything we touched went big phase and i kind of felt like heavy music kind of like became more mainstream and that fell right into our lap because that's what we had been doing. Mm -hmm. And then the artists started to change and evolve to what was working too. So it was like this whole system was working. Was it hard to sell 50% of your company? Well, I mean, looking back, I wish I never did that. But at the time I did that, it was an easy decision because I was burnt out. You know, I was burnt out from running this thing shoestring for so long. And so, you know, they gave me some money and they also said, hey, we'll do all the stuff you hate, legal, bookkeeping, you know, all that stuff. And just let me get back to who Brandon is. And that's making records, right? And it worked. I mean... I wish I didn't do it because I could, probably could have just figured out a better way to do all that the back end on my own, but it relieved my mind of the pressures of everything that was going on where all of a sudden, like right after that happened, you know, I signed Emery and Amber Lynn, Under Oath, Hawk Nelson, Thousand Foot Crutch, Haste the Day, Norma Jean. Norma Jean was actually a few months before that, but May. So here we go. Jeremy Camp oh, sold six million. I mean, almost it was just crazy, yeah. right? Like Cutlass. But you had resisted. That, yeah. I'm trying to untangle the different forces here. Well, yeah. So for five years, I resisted selling, and then one day, I was just like, I'm, I'm kind of over it all. Like I'm just ready to see if I can go to the next level, you know. And I felt like if I sold half the company to EMI, I would have a bunch of bands break on at the major label level. But it never really happened. But, but they got the they got hand, chances though. I mean, the almost was on, the almost was on Capital, or the almost I think was on Virgin, and then 
May went to Capitol, Squad Five O went to Capitol. You know, we had different different bands that had chances for sure. What's interesting though is a lot of this stuff's happening at all at once, but it definitely worked. And when you say regret it, I mean we'll get back to that. But for now. You signed with EMI here. You sell half the company, 51%, 49%, something like that. And um, it worked, right? Like, what, totally, was the, what was the feeling of the, did no, the, did yeah, the employees yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like I mean, it? No, and the then, first three or four years were gold, right? Because when I decided to sell half the company, around that time, Bill Power left to go, I believe, to go do Zam, Zambui, and Teresa left. And so we started hiring different people, John Dunn, Amanda McKinnon. Um, Roy came in then. Roy Culver, John Frazier, who had worked at Drive Through Records, and we were, had the money now because EMI came in, and bought half the company, to just go out and hire somebody like John Frazier that actually had record label experience. I mean, <laughs> Tooth and Nail was built on interns, and then hey, you want to work for me? Kind of a thing. And by the way, that worked out great. But it was also nice to maybe go into the pool of talent that was out there and hire a Roy Culver that worked at EMI, hire Derek Timbush that worked at EMI, hire Dr- John Frazier that worked at Drive Through, right? Hire Tyson Paoletti that worked at Five Minute Walk Records. Yes, I can do that now. You know, and that a lot of that had to do with me. I could have done that before, by the way, but it, that a lot of that came with me having the release in my mind that EMI was going to do all my legal work, all my accounting, all my books. And if I had a down year and we lost some money, at least what they told me was they never had to deal with this because we killed it. But that, hey, if you have a down year, you don't worry. We got you. Go out and do what you do. And when I did that, I kicked ass. But one of the things that you do that kicks ass is get the talent musically. But also, you've been on what what I feel like the story might be here is you were then able to go out and get more talent because you could afford more talent in the workplace. Right. You know, like you said, you, you were able to go still use your ear and you were able to purchase more talent for the staff and then you're able to make a lot of hay with yeah with, and with i also that. yeah and i also we you know we hired chad johnson i bought takehold records really um and, and he was in financial trouble and i said hey i just emailed him like one sentence hey can i buy you and you know i didn't give him a ton of money but i got him out of all of his debts and then he came to work for me and he was a missionary kid gone crazy or whatever and um, I think that's been what's cool about Tooth and Nails. Even in the 2000s, when we went out and hired John Frazier, Derek Tembush, people that had a lot of experience, I still would hire a Chad Johnson or a John Dunn. Mm-hmm. John Dunn's an intern, right? He hasn't graduated from college yet, and he goes on to sign August Burns Red and Emory and kicks, you know. And Chad Johnson, same thing. I mean, it, it's still the Tooth and Nail way, you know. I mean, I've had people, two employees work that I hired that graduated from USC. And they're still making the same money that somebody didn't graduate from college at all, right? Like, I mean, Tooth & Nail is a very quirky company where it's kind of the vibe we get. Like, we're all self-starters. We all, you know, we're all super driven. And if to work there, you just kind of have to fit into the culture, right? Whether you have a 4.0 GPA from USC or you never went to college at all. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to be kind of fit our little mold. So tell me if you agree, then, at, with heavy music is rising in a way that falls into your lap. You have now more funds and security and stuff from EMI that empower you to even unlock more talent in the staff and spend your focus time even more finding good bands. So those three things together really spell success going forward in this era. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, EMI 
tried to buy me for years. I didn't want to do it. And when I did do it, they kind of just did things to help me that, you know, I probably could have done on my own, but I didn't, I didn't see, see it that way. Right. I didn't, I took too much burden from the whole thing. And like, they just took this burden off of me and it allowed me to be the brand. And I was in 95 and 96, not the brand of 1999 and 2000, which was a darker place for me. Mm-hmm. And we just killed it. You know, we hit the, we hit the warp tour. I mean, you could argue under oath kind of created a genre of music, right? Yeah. I buy take hold records and I told Chad, there's three things that I want. I want to buy your label because I want under oath. I want you and I want 238. And I mean, under oath and 238, I don't know who's going to be bigger, but I think they're both going to be big. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think people are familiar with under oath, but um, why don't you tell people about 238 in case they happen to have missed it? 238 is one of my all time -time favorite bands. And uh, Chris Stables right now, he's uh, in Seattle. He's on Barsook Records, but he's an amazing songwriter. And 238 was one of my all time favorite groups. And at that time, under oath and 238 both sold about 6,000 copies. Describe 238. Kind of just cool indie rock. He's from Florida, but it's almost more, I don't even know how to describe it. Sebado, maybe? It's hard to compare. He has his own thing going, but hey, you should check out Chris Stables at some point. He's amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff. Go to check it out. Um, Let's thread the staff thing back here and incorporate you hiring Ryan Clark. This is Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter and previous tooth and nail solid state endeavors, training for Utopia and Focal Point. And I worked as art director and designer for the label for 13 years between 2000 and 2013. And I am still a musician and designer. Okay, so here comes a big time hop. So to help illustrate our larger point, we're going to go back and get a picture of Ryan's initial intersection with the tooth and nail world. I'm going to tell you, this stuff really hits home with me because there's so many parallels with my life and my feelings, as I'm sure it is with many of you out there with respect to music and counterculture and the discovery of new and boundary-pushing art, particularly in the Christian space. Here's me and Ryan Clark. First, it was skateboarding. Uh, I got really into skateboarding and was turned on to a lot of punk rock, namely like early 90s, mid 90s pop punk by a neighborhood kid that was into that stuff. What were those bands? Pennywise, Bad Religion, Face to Face, and then started doing a lot of research and getting my hands on whatever I could that was in that world that ended up being no effects, no use for a name, and then a whole bevy of, you know, smaller, um, lesser known bands. A lot of that was through skate videos. So I kind of learned about the the bigger names like Pennywise and Bad Religion. And then you kind of learned about all these smaller bands that kind of came and went by watching skateboard videos. Every guy would, you know, skating would have their own like little song in the background and you would a lot of the times, like the Plan B video, Virtual Reality, which was really huge back then, mm-hmm. um, actually had the name of the artist. Like whenever it would, you know, a new section would start up, they would have the name of the artist in the song. So that was like a treasure trove of finding out about new bands. And then I think the typical thing back in the 90s was, you know, you buy a record and then you go through the thanks list or whatever. And so that happened. Um, and punk kind of segued into hardcore at a certain point, like in the mid-90s, by virtue of, I think, Earth Crisis and Snapcase mm-hmm. were the first big ones. And then that was just, that's when the floodgates opened up 
in terms of like going through those thanks lists and like looking at zines and stuff like that and just going to shows and you know back then people would open like a briefcase and have like a little distro at the shows you would just buy stuff based on album covers or seven inches or whatever and then it just snowballs from there what was the culture like at and you grew up in california but in california or sacramento area what was the was how many people were into that kind of stuff at, at your school because where i was from it was it was like just zero <clears throat> yeah um where i was at immediately um which is like a suburb of sacramento elk grove it was non-existent so that was kind of part of the fun was you know me and a handful of my friends that were like-minded and kind of wanted to play in a band and we were like the gatekeepers of all that stuff so we turned a lot of other friends on to that stuff there were a few older guys in the sacramento area that had been in that kind of like hardcore or adjacent scenes for a while and those were kind of like the forefather guys that we ended up meeting and becoming friends with guys like uh, sean lopez from far and a guy um, jose who was he was definitely like the hardcore forefather guy uh, he was probably about a decade older than us but you'd go to his house and it'd just be like stacks of cds and tapes and records and music videos and all that kind of stuff what click though would it been was it gothy or alternative kids or like what was the people that could have been skaters skaters Skaters. for the most part it was skaters and like graffiti dudes Mm -hmm. um but graffiti guys that kind of that crowd for me because that was a huge thing for me was the graffiti stuff that crowd was usually split into two there was like the guys that were super into hip-hop wu-tang clan and all that stuff, like the the Bay Area stuff, like Hieroglyphics and Del the Funky Homo Sapien. Um, and then it was spit, split kind of between guys like that and then punk and hardcore guys mm-hmm. and like some metal guys. Um, I remember the first time I heard like Carcass was there was a skater that used to be around and he always had a headset on and he was always listening to really extreme metal mm-hmm. stuff. How did you feel personally that made you identify with any of those cultures? Be, even skater culture, what made you identify with them? compared to the mainstream um part of it was just the mystique of it and the you know i grew up a pastor's kid so there was a lot of things um that felt that either were or or at least felt like they were off limits and so a lot of the counterculture subculture elements whether it was like the visual elements of the skate graphics at the time like going into a skate shop you know with my parents there were decks that had really crazy graphics on them back then i think even more i mean there are some that that like these days go real crazy like uh, subversive graphics but it was almost there was almost more of a point to it back then like the old Javante Turner skateboards had like Ku Klux Klan guy hanging from a tree or one of his decks he was like one of the you know Back then, one of the very few black skateboarders, one of his decks had like an old mammy, um, like a uh, black kid with like a slice of watermelon or something like that. And I knew that there was something, something about it that was kind of prodding at something mm-hmm. bigger. I didn't really know what to, you know, at, at the time I didn't, I wasn't able to put my finger on it. But there were graphics like that and then other graphics that were just evil looking that were cool. You know, all the stuff that the, uh, all the Powell stuff that V.C. Johnson was illustrating for um, McGill and for one. Tony Hawk and all that stuff. And Mike McGill yeah, and then all the stuff that uh, Jim Phillips was illustrating for Slimeball Wheels and the Slasher decks, the Rob Roscop decks, 
all that stuff just looked really like aggressive and scary and it was the kind of stuff that for me was kind of off limits and so is that why you were checked to though because it's off limits. yeah yeah absolutely how does I mean, that tie into you said you grew up a pastor's kid and all that I mean, I think it was probably started as just a natural rebellion. The idea that you weren't supposed to have it, I would go to school in like a regular shirt and then change into like a pusshead Metallica shirt. And there was something about it that just, I mean, it just felt cool. You know, um, I always liked being part of what felt like a, a really niche subculture of friends or uh, like a clique. So the graffiti crew thing really appealed to me. The punk rock thing appealed to me. The straight edge thing appealed to me. The skateboard thing appealed to me. I knew that I wasn't cut out for being a jock or for being a, you know, really scholastic. I, I think, you know, I was in some like advanced placement classes early on, like in grade school. And it just, you know, I was fine with that, especially the art stuff. But nothing really got my wheels turning like art did. Art was such an important element of skateboarding it was the closest thing you could get to like an activity a sport that still had like a real um importance still kind of like showed a real importance like in the arts like Mm -hmm. you would flip through a thrasher magazine and you would see these guys doing skate tricks and skating bowls and all this stuff but you would also see like ads for skate decks or for compilations um, from like indie labels you would see like rocket from the crypt ads or you would see like zorlak you know pusshead illustrations you would see you know, really cool and subversive and weird and like, like kind of titillating images. Um, and that to me, like was, it was the whole package, you know, like you could, it was something that you could go and do and like actually get good at. It was like a skill, like a, a sport in essence that you could practice. And, and like, there was like a whole world that kind of opened up to you when you skateboarded, you could just go away, you know, get out of the house and go with your friends and go find some secret spot that had great rails or great staircases or whatever, you know, there was that appeal to it, but then like everything else that contributed to the skate scene was basically like a segue into music or mm-hmm. into visual art. When I first found like early on, it was mortification and tourniquet. And then the big aha moment was focused. I went to the Christian bookstore and saw that album cover and it looked really dark and eerie and saw the tooth and nail thing on the back of it. That was the first time I'd ever seen a tooth and nail thing. And so when I found Focused, I had already been listening to Earth Crisis and Snapcase and stuff like that. And that was like finally something that sounds legitimate and sounds cool. And so that's what I was basically waiting for. Because shortly after finding these records and finding out about these bands like Tooth and Nail as a label, it wasn't long after that before I knew that I wanted to, you know, play in a band. Okay, so I don't know if you guys out there have ever had to do any hiring before where you hire people, but it's hard. Well, it used to be hard. It used to be multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, but today hiring can be easy. And you only had to go to one place to get it done, and that's ZipRecruiter.com slash labeled. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. They have this powerful matching technology where they scan thousands of resumes and find people with the right experience, and they invite those people to apply to your job. 
So it's like this. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Now, if you have ever done any hiring or if you ever worked on a team, you know how important it is to get the right people. You're only as good as your team. And man, the peace of mind of knowing you got the right people on the job means everything. So all the help you can get from technology and ZipRecruiter, you got to do it. You got to use it. So right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash label. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-A-B-E-L-E-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash labeled. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, we're jumping back into Ryan's story and his decision to start a band with his friends. And so a friend and, and I basically kind of made the agreement that I would take guitar lessons and he would take bass lessons. And as soon as we're ready, like even half ready, we're going to start a band. And so it was just a group of friends that used to skateboard together. And each of us kind of took an instrument and learned how to play it until we got to a certain point. And then we just started booking house shows and playing like little clubs and then going to Reno and playing and then going to LA and playing, going to Bakersfield, going to places that were kind of close enough. And then once we really started going to LA frequently, we got to play with some of our favorite tooth and nail bands like Unashamed or Overcome. And this is what band at the time? Focal Point. We were a straight edge Christian band. So on one of those trips, we played Bakersfield and we got to play with Overcome, which we really liked because they seemed to be the only band. They they were a brand new band for Tooth & Nail at the time, but they seemed to be the only band that was actually addressing things like veganism and straight edge in their thank yous and in their songs and things like that. They were actually talking about it. They didn't really wear it on their sleeve, but it was, they were at least trying to be part of the conversation. And uh, shortly after we got back home, uh, Jason Stinson, the the singer for Overcome, called Brandon Ebel and told him, you got to sign this band Focal Point. They're amazing. And so Brandon left a message on our, my, my my parents' home phone at the time, uh, where my brother and I both lived. And uh, we were just, we couldn't believe it. You know, we knew who Brandon was. We obviously, at that point, we'd been completely entrenched in the tooth and nail thing. And, you know, every Christmas, we basically just like circled stuff in the tooth and nail catalog. And like, mm-hmm. that's that was our whole Christmas. So it was very surreal to hear him on the on the phone and he was basically like sight unseen wanted to sign us. He wanted to sign us and he wanted to, us to play at at the time it was called Suburbia. So he wanted us to play at the second annual Suburbia Festival which was like Supertones, Unashamed, like basically a j- half of the Tooth and Nail roster if not more. And I think that was down in Orange County. It was like a huge, you know, we'd never played on a stage that big and you know, we'd, we'd played these really great club shows and church shows that were really fun, but we had never played like on a big stage with a big sound system. So that was a huge thing for us. So we went down there and played, very quickly realized that we were like more professional and like better at our instruments than like a lot of the bands <laughs> on the label, which was really funny and eye-opening for us. Everything from there was kind of history. Shortly after that, like Brandon was super stoked at our performance and, you know, we were in the studio within a couple months recording down in Southern California with Michael Vale Blum, who had done like Suicidal Tendencies. And, and so that was our first, you know, real recording scenario. We had recorded some stuff in Sacramento with a guy who who did do, you know, some early Deftone stuff. And, and so that, that was cool. But then going, like actually going to, you know, Los Angeles and recording with like a, a big name producer, at least to us, 
was like a huge deal. And that first Focal Point record came out when uh, I was 16. But I remember wow. bringing the CD into to school. Um, That's insane. We put the record out between the junior and senior year, and then as soon as the senior year was over, we hit the road and did a like a four-week tour, and it was just a total trial by fire. You know, we booked it all ourselves, showed up to places, and like, you know, played for four people here and five people here and sometimes, you know, 100 people. And then we all kind of got home, and I don't know if we really knew what to do with ourselves. And, like, it was so eye-opening for all of us that we just kind of, like, crumbled instantly. <laughs> like we, <laughs> Why did you crumble? Tell me I, how I don't know. I mean, we were working towards another record, so we did have some some new songs in the bag, and we were doing that for a few months. But then it was just people were kind of, like, being pulled in different directions, and it, I don't think any of us were really equipped to, like, figure out how to solve that problem at the time. So when it started to feel like people weren't into it anymore or maybe after tour like you know people just weren't cut out for it or something then it just kind of fell apart luckily at the same time my brother had started training was for there utopia a moment before that though where you thought this is, sucks it's falling apart it's over i'm done or anything like that the only reason i didn't feel like that is because towards the end of that stint with focal point my brother had started training for utopia with three other guys and maybe in hindsight like my lack of interest in keeping things together with focal point was partially because i knew that the singer for training for utopia was moving back to southern california and they basically needed a new singer and so i knew that there would be like a place for me there to do that and that kind of music was at the time much more interesting to me anyway and so i probably could have given like focal point a more more of an effort to keep it keep things together but at the time i was just i had started doing training before focal point even broke up so their singer, Rob, moved back to Los Angeles. I recorded the EP with Training for Utopia singing. And then there was a handful of shows where we played, both bands would played. So there was an early like showcase. The Solid State would do these awesome shows down at the Showcase Theater. And uh, it would just be stacked with a bunch of Solid State bands. But there was one of those where Training played and then Focal Point played. And then I did the same thing at a, at a friend's house. I think we played, I think it was like Botch and Trial. And it was in my friend's backyard. And it was in training and focal point both played. So there were a couple shows where I played in both bands. So like my my attention was just kind of like starting to be really like uh, taken up by training for Utopia and the the possibilities and like just the you know my brother was in the band. I mean that was a part big part of it. And so there was just some enticing things like that about it. All right, around the same time, up in Washington State, there was another kid who was into alternative music, like Focal Point and Training for Utopia. And his name was... I am Jonathan Dunn. I'm the bass player in Demon Hunter. I was the director of A&R for Tooth & Nail and Solid State Records for a handful of years. I think I started in 2001, and I left about 2012. So I was there for a lot of fun years. Okay, it's rewind time again. Now, this is John's story of what it was like growing up in a world when Tooth & Nail was just emerging and having a big impact in the alternative Christian music space and was unknowingly changing the life trajectory of many would-be Tooth & Nail kids. And both Ryan and John's backstory matter here because it was being a fan of Tooth & Nail as kids and young adults that brought them together in the first place, and it was the culture of the label itself that fostered the freedom of exploration and led to the form of Demon Hunter in a way that nobody expected. All right, here's me and John. 
So I grew up in the Seattle area, early 90s. I was about 10, 11 years old when like the whole grunge scene broke out. So I was a little young to fully appreciate what was going on, but uh, I had older siblings, specifically an older brother, that introduced me to a lot of that, and my mom would make him bring me along and take me along for shows and stuff like that. So, How did you first time you found anything punk or knew what that word was or what that music was? Can you yeah, um, there, used to be, there used to be this record shop in Kent, Washington, a uh, skateboard right away from where I grew up called Bubble Records. Rest in peace. It was a great record store. But So I started going there for grunge stuff and Seven Inches and B-Sides and you know i remember going there to buy like the no alternative soundtrack that had a, one of the covers had a girl and one cover had a boy if i remember right the one that had a girl on the cover had like the secret nirvana song on it and you know that kind of stuff so um i started going to record stores and kind of collecting records back then just trying to you know there wasn't the digital media so if you wanted these like hidden songs or hidden gems you had to go to the record store and uh so you know me and my group of friends in junior high age started going to the record store and from there started exploring different music and you know that quickly went into punk rock so you know listening to stuff like dead kennedys and black flag and the germs and social distortion and you know just kind of the whole like punk genre um so i spent a good lot of years listening to that um, middle school or what is that yeah this is like middle school probably seventh eighth ninth grade discovering a lot of that stuff what was that scene where did you fit in with the high school cliques and stuff like that who was listening to punk music and who wasn't yeah it was uh it was definitely like the skater clique and um you know i think in this day and age it's all like homogenized a lot more where you know back then there was like clear distinction of like whatever you listen to is what you look like mm -hmm. which is who you identified with right. and you know uh at least growing up in seattle though you know today you're like if you ask somebody what kind of music are you into they're like i'm into everything that was definitely not an answer it was like everyone had a very clear like oh i'm into punk or i'm into alternative or mm -hmm. i'm into grunge or i'm into metal Probably around sixth grade or so is when, um, you know, I started feeling like I didn't fit in with, you know, other cliques. And I guess that's kind of about where cliques start forming is like late elementary school. And so people figure out, am I a jock or am I a music right. guy or am I a skater? And, um, you know, there was a bunch of circumstances in my life and the community around me and stuff like that that, you know, I didn't feel like identified and you know had uh, a lot of frustration towards what i felt was going on in society obviously i didn't have a <laughs> broad view of society or understanding but at least my small purview of it like felt a lot of frustration towards um you know things that were going on and things i didn't understand and things that i weren't it wasn't in control of and authority is that part of it yeah or authority is part of it for sure um and so you know and grunge like definitely was part of that and then punk was kind of grunge on steroids and then metal was like steroids with meth on top of it You know, and it was just kind of like fueling, um, you know, I, I think it's uh, like two wheels on a bicycle where at first you might have these feelings and you're finding music that, um, you know, feels like it soothes that or it scratches that. And then I think the other pedal is then you start finding more of it and it's fueling your, um, you know, identity. Opens your eyes more to uh, Yeah, angst. yeah. And so the two of them are just kind of pushing and growing on one another for better or for worse. 
definitely wouldn't take it back. Those were super exciting years, discovering music and discovering yourself and identity within music and communities tied with music and stuff like that. And it, it was a really cool thing. What about uh, how does Christianity fit into that? Yeah, so I grew up in a you know Christian household, and we went to church every Sunday, and my dad was an elder and taught church classes every Sunday. He was never a pastor or anything like that, but... Um, so yeah, definitely a religious family. Uh, my brother and I were, you know, a little more rebellious than my sisters and, you know, um, you know, tested the, <laughs> tested the limits of was my there parents' Christian, patience. You, was there Christian music? Were you, yeah, you growing up, CCM um, or anything? Yeah. Like I mean, there, I mean, my mom would make every effort possible to, you know, try to figure out like a Christian version of something that we could listen to. So, you know, she'd buy us whatever DC talk records and, uh, I can't even remember all the stuff that she would buy us but um she'd be like oh you like grunge you'll like the choir or some random band that sounds nothing like that for me like you know i i grew up identifying as a christian or believing in christ and trying to figure out like what that means for my identity and who i am and how that fits into how i view the world and all that kind of stuff and music just didn't align with where i was as a young adult and as a Christian, like there wasn't a music version that kind of, uh, I could identify with. So that changed. Um, I think it was like the summer of eighth grade. Uh, my parents sent me out to a church camp and, um, you know, I was super aggro about going there and, you know, uh, this lame Christian subculture thing and going to church camp and riding horses and, you know, definitely had a terrible attitude mm -hmm. about it. And, uh, I remember, uh, taking a bus there or whatever. I don't remember what the camp was called, but we uh, got off and then, you know, all the camp counselors are standing there and, uh, you know, being a rebellious teenager, I shaved my head into a mohawk before leaving for church camp or probably <laughs> not just because of church camp, but summertime it was like school principals can't tell me what to do. I know now you could get away with a mohawk, but back then you couldn't show up to school with a mohawk. But so I had a mohawk and chip on my shoulder and, you know, feeling like a badass. And uh, so we get off the bus, and all the camp counselors are standing there, and I see one dude, and he's, like, wearing dicky shorts, and he has a mohawk, and he has an earring, which was, like, whoa, crazy progressive at that time, especially in church in church culture. I was like, this, this dude looks like me. Oh he looks God. like an older version of me. This is amazing. And I was like, oh, man, I hope I get him as my counselor. Look at all these squares over here, you know, but, mm -hmm. like, this guy, I'm into it. Uh, and I'm sure it's Providence, but I ended up in that guy's cabin, and that guy was awesome he was a killer dude and you know it's crazy to think back how much of an influence that guy had on my life uh -huh. um because yeah i mean he was he was probably a high schooler and whatever five years older than me but at that point in time like he was he'd lived a lot of life compared to what i had and uh you know i was into similar music and pantera and metallica and the grunge stuff and all that kind of stuff he introduced me to two bands that ended up changing the whole course of my life um i would say but he uh introduced me to uh living sacrifice and vengeance rising I remember he had a little dub tape and one side was Living Sacrifice, self-titled, and then on the other side had the Vengeance Rising Human Sacrifice record on it. So I'm guessing this is probably 94-ish. I remember him playing it for me, he had like a boom box and he was playing it for me, we were like sitting in the cabin and he was playing it for me. And you know, I was like blown away. Yeah. 
it was one of the first times at that age in my life that I didn't feel alone, right? Um, I was like, there's other people that other feel... Other people like me. Other people like me and other people that feel the way that I do. That, you know, they believe in Jesus. They're not happy with the state of the world that it's in. And they make great music on top of that. And for me, it was like, that was an epiphany moment of like these worlds that I feel like I'm living in juxtaposition of, of Christianity and DC talk versus Pantera and stuff like that. And these are two polar opposites and there's nothing in the middle. And when he introduced me to those bands, I was like, this makes sense. Like, I'm not alone. There's other people that feel the way I do and enjoy what I do and believe in Jesus on top of it and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so he like gave me the, the tape at the end of the week we spent almost every day just listening to it and talking about music and stuff like that and he gave me the tape and i went home and i was like just devouring that stuff so that was pretty much the first christian band that i heard that i enjoyed that and I was it was like, living sacrifice on tooth and nail solid state. uh it was rex rex records it was, it was, was pre-solid state mm -hmm. um so, so you still hadn't heard it then you must have encountered tooth and nail right after that or something yeah so similar time frame you know started hearing about mxpx and started seeing them at house shows this is kind of before poking action and the uh tooth and nail release and stuff like that um again you were seeing mxpx before tooth yeah yeah so you know having older siblings growing up in seattle you know tied into the christian scene so, um, you know, there was like two houses in Seattle. There was the House of Punk and the House of Funk. So the House of Funk was like uh, the guys from Don't Know and mm -hmm. Soul Food 76. And then there was a House of Punk um, as like a whatever 12, 13 year old kid. My brother would have to drag me around to these shows. And so I saw MXPX play at those house shows and stuff like that. And so, so that, I mean, that makes you an original, like, you know, the whole thing about punk rock, Christian punk mm -hmm. rock, and that the fans are the kids. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. in the first generation of oh, yeah. fan yeah. of the, the genre. Really. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they were a little more bubblegum than the, the stuff I enjoyed at that point in time. But, you know, they were closer to where I was at. They're, I'm like, they're into skateboarding and my career as a mohawk. And, you know, they seem like cool dudes and they're not as angsty as I am, but I appreciate what they have going on. And so that was around a similar era. Um, you know, it didn't really completely like click the puzzle pieces in my mind the way that Living Sacrifice and Vengeance mm -hmm. Rising did. But yeah, you know, I remember like, when Poconaccia came out, I think I was at a, I think it was a CD release or a tape release show back then. And it was at like a Calvary Chapel in like Port Orchard area, something like that. My brother had to take me to it and I went there and I remember buying the tape there. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed that stuff. And then what? I pretty much got introduced to Tooth and Nail through, you know, MXPX, Poconaccia coming out, you know, kind of tied in with that scene. So that's when I became familiar with Tooth and Nail and started exploring some more of the stuff that they put out. And, you know, definitely from there became a Tooth and Nail fan and listening to all those early releases and stuff like that. And, um, you know, when Solid, I remember when Solid State was like introduced and it was like, oh, cool. This is like a whole new, like crazy thing. And um, so I grew up like, quintessential tooth and nail kid um and i'd always kind of have a balance between you know listening to the christian music and what was going on in the rest of the world and all that kind of stuff definitely kept track of tooth and nail stuff and would order from the catalogs and you know when my mom would drag me to a christian bookstore i'd go to the um you know tooth and nail well either section or they'd have these like little prints printouts that would be like if you're a fan of nirvana you're also gonna like the christian version Bleach. I think that was literally, yeah. it was like Nirvana and Bleach. So. <laughs> sure, Nirvana had an album called Bleach, but like Bleach does not sound like Nirvana. Right. 
so I think that kind of leads up to, so Tooth and Nail was doing a grand opening of a Tooth and Nail store in Seattle that was in Pioneer Square. And uh, so I don't even know how I heard about the announcement of the store opening. Like this is kind of pre-internet days, but somehow I knew there was a store and it was opening and it was on a Saturday or whatever. So um, a handful of friends and I like piled into a car and or I don't know if it was a bus. I don't bus or car whatever we figured out how to get down there so we showed up there for the grand opening you know uh, and we're waiting in line and there was like five people in line for the grand opening and three of the five we all rode in the same car (laughs) (laughs) uh and so that was the first time i met brandon I'm, i'm sure i was probably in the room with brandon as shows were going on and stuff like that but never met him so you know brandon comes out all excitedly and he's got a video camera and he's like filming the line and interviewing everybody and asking why you're here what's your favorite band all that kind of stuff so store opens let us go in so we're digging around and buying cds and tapes and there's posters and stickers and you know just kind of jumping in all this stuff and uh i remember billy power was at the cash register so i went up and i was checking out and you know kind of talking with him or whatever and so at one point in time in the conversation i tell bill i was like hey uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna work here one day yeah i'm gonna work here one day and bill i mean i'd probably do the same thing if i was in the spot (laughs) bill looks at me and he's like yeah right kid (laughs) (laughs) it just kind of blew me off and i remember at the time like i was kind of uh kind of offended like how quickly he blew me off it wasn't like yeah man like you know stay in school and get good grades or you know that some like pump up he was just like whatever kid like get out of here just blew me off and i was like oh bummer you know the irony is years later i took his job at two after he after he left so i was right as that kid I mean, you original tooth and nail kid, first generation. Tooth and yeah. nail opens a store. You meet Billy Power, who's the first generation of mm-hmm. A and R guy ever there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you got a job. I remember this. You can tell this in a second. I remember yeah. then you. I remember knowing you when you got your job, even in the mailroom, and eventually come go mm-hmm. on to be head of A and R tooth and nail and in demon hunter yeah so. totally um, so yeah after those years like you know being a tooth and nail fan like um i used to do the street team stuff that was a thing and wait wait remember? wait oh yeah. you were doing street team as a fan so yeah as a fan yeah, okay. as a fan so you know whatever year two after i don't even know how long after um year two after the store grand opening they were doing street team stuff so i signed up on the street team and, you know, I remember they would send me boxes of, like, Juliana Theory, Top of the World singles, and I'd go to shows and just pass them out, these singles out in front of the shows and stuff like that. And so that's how I met, you know, kind of the first wave of people that I knew from Teeth and Nail. At the time, uh, Amanda McKinnon was running promotions, so she was running the street team, so I met Amanda and, you know, started hanging out with Amanda. And then, uh, you know, at the time, I, I was still playing in a uh, band and doing some lame emo stuff. Wanting and to get signed wanting, to Tooth and Nail. Wanting to get signed to, you know, Tooth and Nail. And so I'd met Chad just through local music scene. You know, we were playing bands like Acceptance and Gatsby's Chad American. Uh, Chad Johnson. Chad Johnson. Yeah. No, he was, Chad Johnson was already here then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this was early, like okay. when Chad Johnson first got here. And so, you know, I met uh, Chad as we were playing with. Gatsby's American Dream and Time to Fly and shortly after that era, you know, about the 
about a year before I met you guys, I had a radio program up at Western Washington University in Bellingham. I was going to school up there and did like a Saturday night radio show. And so then Emily Orzio, who worked there, was running college radio stuff. And so, you know, we had a relationship and she was sending me stuff to play on the radio. And, you know, I wasn't really doing street team stuff, but I was going to school for, uh, uh, at the time it was called Internet Design and Resource. So building websites. Yeah. Old school. This is 2000, 2000, 2001. Um, so, you know, I had built a couple of websites for tooth and nail. I'd worked on, uh, the star flyer, leave here a stranger, basically like a flash website that would kind of take the album artwork and it moved slightly. And it was like a promo website. So I'd done a couple of those. I forget if it was Amanda or Emily, but I think one of the two had reached out to me and they're like, Hey, the webmaster, that was a term for uh, a job at most companies back then. Our webmaster who was Bill Power is in the process of leaving and we need somebody else to run our website and would you be interested in you know you built a couple tiny websites for us would you be interested in being our webmaster i'm like oh okay yeah like cool that sounds great as long uh, if i can get in the door at tooth and nail like i'm into it had an interview with brandon and you know i'm nervous like oh my gosh this is like my dream you know i told bill power five years ago that i was going to work here and now i'm coming into the building and this was like dream status like dream job for me i remember showing up for the interview and i'm like oh, play it cool play it cool act like you belong here you know like, um talk to the people i know beforehand i'm like hey anything i need to know and they're like no no, no brandon i'll just talk to you for a minute and you know you'll get started or whatever i'm like okay so I walk into brandon's office and i'm nervous as i'll get out and <laughs> the interview was all of five minutes long and he's sitting at his desk and i walk in and he turns around and he's like hey man what's up i'm like oh hey and he's like, uh, so you think you can work here? I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, I've been going to school. I'm building these websites. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, yeah, we really need somebody in mail order. So, uh, yeah, if you want to work in mail order, like, I'm cool with it. I'm just kind of like turns his chair and moves around. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so this isn't about websites. This is about mail order. Like, what? I'm not going to argue, right? Like, I'm just like, okay, yeah, okay, okay. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm fine with it. And I leave and I'm like, does that mean I have a job or do I not have that? It was kind of ambiguous. Um, come to find out, I did get the job. So John's hired on as the mailroom guy, and this is where things really get interesting, but there's so much to tell that we're going to have to save it for next time. But here's what you're in for. We're going to talk more about tooth and nail and artwork and the culture at the tooth and nail offices and the unbelievable faith that Brandon had in his own decision making and the decision making of others. And of course, we're going to do the real Demon Hunter origin story. Okay, can't wait for you to hear the next one. Until then, roll those credits. My name is Jeffrey from Ohio. I'm a labeled member and my favorite tooth and nail band of all time is Demon Hunter. Matt Carter is our host. Editing and sound design by Melanie Sutton. Story by Matt Carter. Production manager is Reba Hansen. Our executive producer is Brandon Evil. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Tyson Paletti, and Marshall Fremont at Tooth and Nail Records. This podcast is made possible by Jesse Batezel, photographer at IWatchSnick on Instagram. Joy from Muscle, Souls, AL, and the rest of the members of the label community on Patreon. If you're interested, becoming a title sponsor like Jesse for your brand or nonprofit, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash labels.